Well, good morning, church. It is a blessing to be here on the fourth Sunday of Advent. Um, I'm going to be honest with you guys. It's always a good thing, right? Uh, this, this may be one of the most difficult sermons I have ever uh, had to prepare in my long two-year career in ministry. <laughs> uh, seriously, and you can see it in the title, Our Struggle. It really should be called My Struggle, but uh, there's another book with that title, and so I decided not to use that title. You can talk to me after if you don't know what I'm talking about. Our Struggle. It got to the point uh, where iteration after iteration, I kind of threw my hands up to the Lord, uh, trusting that He would give me words to say up here, and the Lord is gracious and has led me to what I, what I think is the heart of our text for this morning. It uh, is a passage that is hotly debated, Isaiah chapter 7. We could argue over the details of it for ages. Uh, if you don't know, there's, there's a Hebrew version, the most original version, which reads one way. The Greek translation of it, years later, reads another way. And that's the version that Matthew uses in Matthew 1, which even reads another way. <laughs> and so there are so many details that we could talk about and get lost in, but the bottom line is, friends, that the birth of a child signifies that God is with his people, and that he will save them from all their enemies. That was true for Isaiah in Isaiah 7, in all its versions. It was true for Joseph and Mary in Matthew 1, and it's true for us today. It really is. So what I'd like to do in our time this morning is somewhat ambitious, but I'd like to look at the text in its original context, the Hebrew version of Isaiah 7, and then I want to just glance at the version that we see in the Greek Old Testament, and we'll look at Matthew 1, and, and then I want to skate over kind of centuries of Christian interpretation of this text, Christian struggle with this text over the years, before concluding with some words of hope uh, and application. For us today. Um, so that is, is my plan, but before we do that, let's take a moment to pray. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you so much for the space in which we can encounter you, God with us, God who is always with us, who was with Israel in the 8th century B.C., who was with Joseph and Mary in the 1st century, who's been with Christians throughout history and who is still with us today in Jesus. I pray that this word would not remain simply a spoken word, an explanation of a text, but that it would take on flesh in our lives that we would embody this word of hope to a, a world that so desperately needs it, Lord. As we continue to adventure with you through this Advent season, journeying toward Christmas, 
I pray that you would make us a light in this sin-darkened world. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, before I get into Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 16, um, I want to set it in its, in its context, in its literary context. And in this case, the best way to do that is to read the verses which precede our passage in Isaiah 7. Um, so if you have a Bible, you can turn to Isaiah 7. I won't have you stand quite yet for a reading, but you can turn to Isaiah 7, the first few verses, um, and I am just going to say a few words about them. In Isaiah chapter 7, it says that in the days of Ahaz, the son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Ramaliah, king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. Now, to understand this, I have a map for us. Let me try to get to it here. Eric, do you have a map on the PowerPoint? Let me just uh, start by saying this is the period of the divided kingdom in Israel. Um, So long after the time of David and Solomon. And so there was a northern kingdom in northern Israel called Ephraim, uh, sometimes Samaria, and there was a southern kingdom called Judah. Now, above this, to the northeast, still nothing? Oh, sorry, I just don't see it on my end. There you go. Yeah, you can see it up here. So we have a southern kingdom in the, in the south, this red mass, and then a yellow mass above. So Ahaz is king in the south, in Judah. And then we see that Pekah... The son of Ramalia is king in the north, in Israel. And to the northeast, the upper right corner, is Aram, or the region of Syria. And that is where Rezin is king. Now, to the east, this is zooming out a bit, we have this growing empire known as Assyria. Now, if you look at this uh, yellow mass in the middle, that is Assyria in antiquity, at the beginning And it continues over the years to grow and grow and grow. And so you can kind of see this teal line and then a red mass above it. Those represent the Assyrian expansion west toward the land of Israel. So at this time, Assyria is marching toward Palestine. And this is this massive empire, Assyria. And their target was Syria in the north and the northern kingdom of Israel. And so these two kings, Rezin and Pekah, join together in resistance against Assyria, and they ask Ahaz in the south for some help. Now Ahaz actually refuses. He says no. And so in response to this, these two kings in the north who had formed an alliance, they threatened to wage war against Ahaz in the south. And so they threaten to invade Jerusalem. And when they do this, when the house of David, represented by King Ahaz, when he was told this, it says in Isaiah verse 2, that the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. Okay? 
So we have this anxious king Ahaz, who is, is worried about these two northern kings who are threatening to invade Jerusalem. And it's into this situation that the Lord sends Isaiah, the prophet. In verse 3 it says, The Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz. In verse 4, say to him, Be careful, be quiet, do not fear. Do not let your hearts be faint because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. Ultimately, as you read on, you'll see that, that the Lord says through Isaiah to Ahaz, this plan hatched by these two kings will ultimately come to nothing. You have nothing to fear, okay? Ahaz is thus sent to comfort this anxious king who is, is facing this imminent threat from the north. And in verse 9, we read, If you, Ahaz, and all the inhabitants of Judah, if you are not firm in faith, if you don't trust me, you will not be firm at all. The prophet Isaiah is sent to a king whose trust was wavering, to compel him to trust Yahweh, and to thus alleviate his anxiety at this moment. And that is where our passage falls in Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 16. So I'd invite you to turn there at this time. In just a moment, we will read it. Isaiah 7, verses 10 through 16, and I'll be reading from the ESV. So as you are able, friends, would you now stand for the reading of God's word? Would you stand? Again the Lord spoke to Ahaz, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be deep as Sheol or or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, and I will not put the Lord to the test. And he, Isaiah, said, Hear then, O house of David, Is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also? Therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, The land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. You may be seated. Friends, this passage continues the the thought, the situation, which began in Isaiah 7, verse 1. The situation in which Ahaz is threatened by these two kings in the north, He's anxious about his and his nation's future. And God sends the prophet Isaiah to him to compel Ahaz to trust God. It says in verse 10 that the Lord, literally, the Lord continued to speak to Ahaz. Friends, if God has to speak to you a second time, that that is not a good sign, okay? Okay? It seems that Ahaz, in verse 9, after being told, if you don't trust me, you will have no stability, it seems that Ahaz doesn't really respond. 
it seems that, that Ahaz is perhaps reluctant to fully trust the Lord. So the Lord has to keep talking to him. And not only this, but the Lord says, ask for yourself. Ahaz, ask me, ask me to do something. Ask for yourself a sign from the Lord your God. He says it could be as deep as Sheol, the underworld, kind of Hades in the Greek understanding, as deep as Sheol or as high as the sky, as high as heaven. This figure of speech, where you'd use opposites here, uh, connotes that everything in between is fair game. So Ahaz could ask God to, I don't know, walk on water, feed 5,000, move a mountain, do anything miraculous and, and palpably powerful to get Ahaz to trust him. He says, I want you to trust me. I'll do anything. Friends, this is a gracious offer from God. To be willing to do this, to move a faithless king to trust in the Lord. And Ahaz, in verse 12, he says no. He says, I will not ask. Straight to God's face, as it were, through Isaiah the prophet, I will not ask and under this veil of false piety, I, I will not test the Lord. Citing passage in Exodus where the Israelites tested the Lord, frustrated him by not trusting him in the wilderness. Ahaz tries to sound pious, but Isaiah erupts in verse 13. He says, listen up. Listen up, house of David. Here he's not only speaking to Ahaz, but, but the house, the, the line that he represents. He ups the ante. Listen up, house of David. Do you really think, it, is, is it too little for you to make a mockery of men? To make a mockery of, of the kingship that I've given you? That you would go so far as to make a mockery of my God? That's what he says. Verse 14, he says, therefore, the Lord himself will give you a sign. Rather than something as high as heaven or as, as deep as Sheol, the Lord will give you a sign. And friends, this is the sign that he'll give. Let me just say, I, I do, if I'm plain, I, do, I disagree with the ESV's translation of Isaiah 7.14 here. I understand where they're coming from, and we'll talk more about reasons why they might have translated this way, but I'm going to do my best to translate as literally from the Hebrew in the word order as possible. And in a few moments, we'll talk about the, the other versions later on. This is the sign given to Ahaz to compel him to trust God. Look, look, the young woman... This is a word meaning a woman who has reached the point where she can bear children, a woman of marriageable age. The young woman is pregnant. This is an adjective, meaning she's, she's already pregnant. She's probably not showing. She's already pregnant. So look, the young pregnant woman, whoever this is, bearing a son soon, 
will call his name Emmanuel. And she, the woman, will name the child Emmanuel, which means God with us. Friends, as opposed to the most miraculous sign in the world, something high as heaven, deep as Sheol, the sign that the Lord will give is an ordinary birth of a child whose name happens to be God with us. Let me keep going. In verse 15, it says that that cheese curds and honey, or you could translate milk and honey, he will eat before he can distinguish between good and evil. It says, because before the young lad, before the boy, can distinguish between good and evil, the land whose two kings you dread, Syria and Ephraim, or northern Israel, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. Friends, the point at which ancient Jews thought children could distinguish between good and evil, believe it or not, was age two. We can differ uh, with them, or maybe not, I don't know. Age two. Ahaz is currently anxious about these kings trying to invade. And Isaiah says this woman is pregnant, and her baby before he's two, before he turns two, those nations will be utterly desolated by, of course, the Assyrians. This has to refer to something soon that would take place in order for it to actually comfort Ahaz. It's an ordinary sign, a young woman giving birth, but the child's name is God with us. Now what I'm going to do is move on and look at the Greek translation of Isaiah 7. Now I know this sounds so technical and academic, but I promise, I promise it will be worth it in the end. In, in the sec- second century B.C., so probably 500 years after the original version in Hebrew, the entire Old Testament was translated into Greek. It's called the Septuagint. Now, this became the Bible, the Bible, used by Second Temple Jews and Hellenistic Jews and Jews in the first century in Palestine. This is the Bible that the Apostle Paul used, that the author of Luke, Matthew, Mark, And all the New Testament writers use. When you look at their quotations, it comes not from the Hebrew, it comes from the Greek Old Testament. So if we just look at verse 14, for the most part, the rest of the passage reads pretty similarly. This this is what Greek Isaiah says in verse 14. In Hebrew, we just saw the sign is, look, the young woman is with child, and she will bear a son, and she shall name him Emmanuel. In the Greek, it says, look, same, roughly the same word, it's translated, of course, look, the virgin, the virgin. This is the word parthenos in Greek, which definitely means virgin. The virgin will become pregnant, so it's changed the adjective, is already pregnant, to a future tense verb. She will become pregnant, she's not yet pregnant. But let me just say, friends, that there's no explicit indication here that this virgin birth back in Isaiah 7 would, be, would take place outside of the normal means of pregnancy. There's no explicit indication, and we'll talk about that in a minute. So she's a virgin now. She will become pregnant, means 
She will go through what you need to go through to become pregnant. And bearing a son, you, it says you, Ahaz, shall name him Emmanuel. We can already see, friends, that some key details are are different. And I have no idea why the translator translates this way, and it's not really worth asking. But friends, this is the version that Matthew would use later on. So let's now turn to Matthew 1. And you can turn to the reading that we heard from our lectionary readings this morning, Matthew 1, verses 18 through 23. I'm going to read from here because it's bigger. And this is one of the earliest Christian interpretations of Isaiah 7 that we have. And I'll just read an excerpt of this. It says, when Jesus' mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant of the Holy Spirit. An angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream, saying, Joseph, do not fear to take Mary for your wife, for that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, which means salvation, for he will save his people from their sins. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Look, the virgin will become pregnant, and she will bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel. So looking at this passage, I've tried to embolden and underline some of the new material or the changes We see here that that Matthew is as explicit as he can be about saying that this birth is a virgin birth. It is miraculous, the birth of Jesus. He takes pains to show us that, that the way in which this child was conceived was not through the normal human means. It says, before they came together, the child is conceived of the Holy Spirit, and she will be found pregnant of the Holy Spirit. And then moving on to, that's verse 21, it says, she will bear a son, and you, Joseph, again, shifting from the Hebrew, she shall name, you, Joseph, shall name him, not Emmanuel, but Jesus. His given name at birth is Jesus. And then we get the quotation in verse 23, which basically reads exactly as the Greek reads, Except instead of saying, you shall call his name Emmanuel, it says, they shall call his name Emmanuel. You, Joseph, shall call his name Jesus, which is really the Greek name Joshua, Jesus, salvation. And they, Israelites all over, after he is born, will call him God with us. They will associate this child with the child mentioned in Isaiah 7. Friends, I think this is so striking because it it tells us that Matthew, Matthew did not read Isaiah 7 as a prediction to be fulfilled only 700 years later. The prediction of Isaiah in Isaiah 7 
was realized in the birth of a real child named Emmanuel in the 8th century. The whole situation, though, the birth of a child signifying God's deliverance of his people from their enemies, was prophetic in that it serves as a metaphor a metaphor for another, more expansive, miraculous situation in which the birth of a child would signify God's presence and His salvation in a much more profound sense. I think Matthew is showing us how to read the Old Testament through the lens of Christ. As Paul mentions in 2 Timothy 3, He shows us that that such a reading, a Christian reading of the Old Testament, doesn't see prophecy as mere prediction that isn't fulfilled until Jesus, but, but as predictions that are realized in key events for Israel, which are expanded, intensified, and literally fulfilled, made full to bursting in the events surrounding Christ and His church. Now, in a few minutes, I want to bridge the gap between Matthew in the first century and us in the 21st century. Justin Martyr, a famous Christian apologist and theologian in the second century, he held the Old Testament and the New Testament together as God's revelation. And so Isaiah 7, 9, 11, 53, to him were very much proof texts that Jesus was Messiah. But if you move on to Jerome in the 4th century, Jerome uh, translated the whole Bible into Latin, the Vulgate. It's famous for that. He, he thinks that these Old Testament texts were predictions of the Messiah, but also that they were signs of God's presence to Israel back then, too. John Calvin, famous interpreter in the 16th century, he thinks that the sign to Ahaz in Isaiah 7 represents, get this, represents God's timeless presence to his people in Christ, even in the 8th century. You can see these interpreters moving in a certain direction. I'll skip over Kalov for the sake of time. But the last interpreter here, Augustine Calmet, who you probably don't know of and I didn't know of, Uh, until about a month ago. Uh, His insights are so salient that I just need to quote them in full for us this morning. He says that this prophetic passage for Christians has a double sense, the historical and the spiritual. He says one does not exclude the other, rather the two flow together. The birth of the Messiah is represented by the birth of the young child in Isaiah 7. The the miraculous virgin birth of Jesus is represented by the fertility of the young woman in Isaiah 7. And the salvation that is offered to the entire human race is represented by the deliverance of Judah from their enemies in the north. So, what really is the point for us today? Through all these details, what is the bottom line? 
I would say again, that the birth of a child signifies that God is with us and that he will save us from all our enemies. That was true then for Isaiah and Ahaz, then for Joseph and Mary, and then for Christians throughout the ages. And I can say without a shadow of a doubt that it is true for us today as well. I'm sure many of you in our current moment, of course with the days getting shorter, but also with our culture, our society getting darker, I'm sure you often feel hopeless, anxious about our future, the future of the church, your individual future, the future of our society. I'm sure you, you feel depressed, you feel bleak, you're longing for assurance. We, we, we are bombarded on all sides, friends, by enemies. Not Syria and, and Ephraim, but sickness, death, anger, polarization, depression. Do you find yourself in this season in need of assurance, in need of hope? Well, if so... I've got good news. The Lord himself will give you a sign. And that sign is a baby. Jesus, our Emmanuel. That baby tells us that before we know it, the enemies we dread will be defeated. Friends, before we know it, the enemies of sin, depression, despair, all of them utterly defeated. Our struggle is not to understand all the details we saw today. Our struggle is not to completely overcome doubt and, and attain certainty all the time, no. Our struggle, in the end, is pretty simple. Say yes to God's offer of a sign. This Christmas, church, I beg you, say yes. Put your trust in the newborn king. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for stooping so low to our level, to offer us a sign, a baby, born in the most ordinary of places, not born in the spotlight, born to a peasant family, but a baby who would become king of the universe. Lord, I pray that the sign that began with Ahaz in the 8th century, continued with Joseph and Mary in the 1st, that it would stretch to the 21st century and meet us afresh today. Give us hope, Lord. You are our only source of true hope. 
Would you please warm us with your presence, your grace, this Christmas, as we worship the newborn King. Amen.